0: Well, thank you, and good morning. 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 I just echo everything that Charlie just said. But in terms of our getting to know the team at His Hill and the ministry there, and now really becoming more familiar with this body. And uh, Gabby and I are just going to end our trip in Minnesota this next week. I have family up there. That's where I come from originally. And uh, we'll see mom and uh, some of my siblings, and then head home for Germany on December 11th. But uh, it's, it's just been a great, great time here at His Hill this week. I was, uh, of course, thinking and praying about what uh, we should look at this morning from God's Word, and I opened up my files that I keep whenever I go somewhere and preach and then return there. And it was interesting for me to see that we were in John 15 in 2017 and John 6 in 2019. And it was interesting that the Lord put on my heart that we would be this morning in John chapter 11. So we're making a kind of a scattered, uh, unorthodox uh, perusal, if you will, of John's gospel. So if you have a Bible this morning, that's where we'll be in John chapter 11. Very familiar event, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And before we read that passage, I just want to say a few things by way of introduction to the Gospel of John, because it is unique among the four Gospels. 90% of the Gospel of John you will not find in what we call the synoptic Gospels, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's good reason for that, because John wrote the Gospel at the end of the first century, and he was asked to give his own account. And so basically, he filled in the blanks. So if you ever look at a parallel of the Gospel accounts, you'll realize that quickly, that 90% of what you find in the Gospel of John is not in the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic Gospels center more on what Christ did, John centers more on who Christ is. The synoptics center on the events of Christ's life. John's gospel centers on the origin of Christ's life. The synoptics, to say it, uh, generally are more historical. John's gospel is more spiritual. And John wrote the reason why he wrote his gospel clearly In John chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31, at the end of that chapter, John said, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The works of Christ in the Gospel of John are not called miracles, they're called signs. And uh, John took actually a small uh, number of them, eight in all, and and he, he wrote them into his Gospel for a specific reason. They're called signs. It's very interesting. Not necessarily miracles, although they were. And there are some people who are searching for a sign from God because... Perhaps they're going through trial. Perhaps they're discouraged. Well, go to the Gospel of John. We have the written word of God, and we have the signs of Jesus in there. At the very end of verse 31, John says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These have been written so that you may believe. And it's interesting that the tense of those two words uh, that you may believe actually would read this way, that you may continue to believe or keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Because when John wrote his gospel, the church had the other three gospel accounts. And towards the end of the first century, the church had become more cosmopolitan uh, it was exposed to tremendous persecution and also deception. And so in as much as he wrote his Gospels to those who don't yet know Jesus, he also wrote it for those who do. So that you and I might, not, might, might keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he uses these signs as illustrations of deeper spiritual truth. that we might know what it means to have life in his name. And each one of the signs illustrates something to teach you and I who have received Christ to know what it means to live with Christ as our life. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The offer of the gospel is not going to heaven. The offer of the gospel is eternal life. And eternal life is not somewhere I enter after I die. Eternal life is a person who enters me before I die, and hence I have a home in heaven after I go through death's door. Nowhere in the book of Acts or in the book of Romans is going to heaven the offer of the gospel. Going to heaven is the result of having received the gospel, eternal life. And eternal life is a person whom I receive here on earth before I die. And hence, eternal life begins at faith, not death. Peter was told in Acts chapter 5 and verse 20, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's interesting, you pay wages to somebody who works. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but sin is a lot of work for a number of reasons. There's absolutely no power of the Holy Spirit involved in an act of sin. We do that totally on our own strength. And the wages of that is that we live in separation from the living God. And in separation from, from his almighty working in our lives through his Spirit. So it's not a good wage to earn. <laughs> First John 5:12 says that he who has the son has the life, because the son is the life, and sometimes we're trying to, to, to live a life we have received. His goal is not to make bad men good. it's primarily to make dead men alive. That's the gospel. It's life. And he has designed you and me in such a way so that we could receive eternal life in this lifetime and learn to live out of that life, Christ. And so we come this morning to John chapter 11, which is a wonderful illustration of Christian living. And so let's begin at verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Two things about Jesus at this point. And this is so important to know, and I trust is an encouragement and a comfort to somebody here this morning. It says that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So in regards to their request, Jesus was silent, but he wasn't deaf. Jesus chose to be silent in their case. He did not go with them. And he had heard perfectly what their request was. He was silent, but he wasn't deaf. He did not act according to human sympathy, nor does he do that today. Because if if he had been sympathetic, he would have gone immediately to heal Lazarus. But he was silent. As scripture says in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 7, there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. And there are times in the wisdom of God that he chooses to be silent in my life. I find that one of the hardest things for a child of God to face. And I wish I could promise everybody that lives with Jesus, he's going to speak into your life the way that you long for it every time. He's not. And there are times when God in his wisdom and in his love chooses to be silent and doesn't answer my prayer. But we just need to know this. He's never a passive spectator of our lives. He hears and he knows. And he chooses sometimes to be silent. Secondly, Jesus was inactive, but he wasn't indifferent. In fact, it says specifically three times in this passage that he loved them. So he wasn't indifferent to them, although he chose to be inactive. He wasn't going to work according to the way that they wanted him to. So that tells me that there are seasons of suffering and sickness even to God's people. Whom he loves. We're not alone in that. As Lazarus and Mary and Martha were not alone. What God does not prevent, he permits. For reasons beyond our understanding very often. But we always must know that what reaches me first went by him. What reaches me, first went by him. And so sometimes he chooses to wait. And in my experience, walking with the Lord over 40 years now, you know, sometimes I think God takes more time than I think is necessary. I don't know about you, But I do know that when God created time, he created enough time to do his will in my life and yours. It's just that I think he should move a little faster. Well, God came. And we read in John chapter 11 and verse 17. It says, so when Jesus came... He found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house, and Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Ah, You know, your heart goes out to Mary and Martha. They'd sent the messengers and Jesus didn't answer their prayer. And that's sometimes the lot of a child of God, and sometimes we're having a gospel preached today that says something else, and it's just not true. And that sets some people up for disappointment because they've been presented with a gospel that says, in this lifetime, you know, I'm going to be problem-free. I'm going to be pain-free. And as I said this past week at, at His Hill, some people said this to me afterwards, we're still living east of Eden. We live in an imperfect, fallen world, and I'm a fallen, imperfect person, but praise God, I may receive a perfect savior. And we are living in light of a better tomorrow. And in the meantime, God has purposes that go far beyond my understanding of what he should do in the the intermediate time. Jesus comes and Martha says, Paraphrased, you're too late. In other words, God, you made a mistake. If, if you were to come earlier, my brother wouldn't have died. How, you know, it, it is the case. It is, it is easier to assume the worst about God than believe the best about him. Just the, the human heart is distrusting of God. And, and so he works over time to instruct us otherwise. But I find it always easier to assume the worst than believe the best. And God has given us his word so that over and over again, he might encourage our faith to know that he is very good. In fact, in the English language, there's only one letter that differentiates the word God from good. Because that's who he is. And they went through a season where it was easier, they thought, to assume the worst about him. It's interesting, in the context of trials, James says this in James 1 in verse 16, do not be deceived. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It's interesting that he says, don't be deceived. Why? Because when you're having a tough day, it's easy to assume the worst about God, that his heart is some way turned against you. Friends, if you can't see the hand of God in your life right now, you can trust in the heart of God. His character is impeccable. It is immutable. And he still gives good gifts. Don't believe everything you think. Believe everything God says. Jesus came and he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He wasn't referring to something in the future. He was referring to that day, literally, in Lazarus' case. And and Martha's answer is, yeah, yeah, I know he'll be raised on the last day. Well, sometimes, sometimes, heaven is an excuse for me to trust Jesus today. And, and I resign myself, okay, well, everybody, everything will be better when I get there. Well, Jesus wasn't referring to that. Yes, I look forward to the day when the new heavens and the new earth will be my home, in which righteousness dwells. I look forward to that day, and the scripture teaches that. But Jesus wasn't referring to that day. He was referring to something that he wanted to do in the immediate situation in the life of Lazarus in particular. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus goes back and he uses the name of God that he gave himself in Exodus chapter 3. At the encounter at the burning bush with Moses, Moses said, what should I tell the elders of Israel when I go there and tell them that the God of Israel has met with me, and they ask me, what is his name? And God said, I am who I am. Human life changes. Who I am today was not who I was yesterday and who I am today is not who I'll be tomorrow because human life is subject to change. We are constantly in the process of becoming for better or for worse. Human life is marked by change. And so At a high school reunion, when we meet an old friend, after 20, 25, 50 years, we realize they've changed. And sometimes we say to ourselves, I don't know if I'd be their friend anymore. There's been a lot of change. Praise God. His life does not change. That is the essence of eternity. And so when Jesus said, I am, he named himself with a name that indicates, I don't change. What a tremendous comfort in the chaotic world in which we live. That we have somebody who is immutable, who never changes, To grow is something that is completely foreign to the living God. Uh, to ask for help is completely foreign to him. Because he doesn't change. He never has and he never will. And also when God named himself in Exodus chapter 3, he named himself with a verb, not necessarily a noun. A verb indicates action. The one who works works. And he said, I am. C.S. Lewis said that the only word we can use to define the word eternity is the word now. It is the continual present tense. And what this does for a child of God and anybody who has received Christ, it's like handing you and me a blank check when it regards the sufficiency of Jesus. Are we weak? He is our strength. Are we afraid? He's our peace. Are we perplexed? He's our wisdom. Are we sorrowful? He's our comfort. He is and always will be. And that's why scripture says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 33 he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I am the resurrection and the life is a description of what everybody can expect when they receive Jesus and he comes to live in them by his spirit. He comes as the resurrection and the life. So let's read on in verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they might believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The signs in the gospel of John are given to teach you and I so that we would not stop trusting Jesus. And the signs in the Gospel of John teach the church deeper spiritual truth. And Jesus gives... A description, this is also an I am and a sign in the Gospel of John. And this is meant to teach us what it means to have life in his name. Friends, there's a death that every Christian needs to die. There's a death that every Christian needs to die. And Paul spoke of it in Philippians chapter 3. And if you're familiar with Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists all of the reasons why he would have an advantage to live a godly life. And then he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 about all these things that would be an advantage in his case to live a godly life, he says, but whatever things were gained to me Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. No human being brings a human advantage to the Christian life. God does not work according to my ability. He works according to my Availability and my implicit trust in Jesus. And Paul says, I cannot trust in anything that I bring to the Christian life that a human being would be able to bring. The only thing that Lazarus needed at this point was a miracle. Watchman Nee in his book, The Normal Christian Life, his exposition of Romans chapters 5 through 8 tells the following story. Watchman Nee was pastoring in China under increasingly difficult situation. He was ministering at a, a conference, and in the afternoon they had a bit of free time, and this conference was taking place on a lake. And he and a staff member... We're standing on the shore, watching some of the participants in this conference have a good afternoon swimming, and watch Manis spotted somebody out in the lake who was struggling to get back into shore. And he made as if he was going to bolt out into the water and go rescue him, and the other staff members standing next to him grabbed his arm and prevented him from doing so. And so both of them stood there and watched as this guy who was struggling, looked as if he was about to go under. And at that moment, the other staff member bolts into the water, saves the man, pulls him up on shore, and Watchman Nee was furious. He said, that guy could have gone under. And the staff member looked at Watchman Nee and he said, no, no, you don't understand something. I had to wait until All of the strength left him before I could save him. And that's the death that every Christian needs to die. To know that anything I could say, humanly speaking, that would be my advantage to live a godly life and produce righteousness on my own, I have nothing to offer. That person needs to die to their own efforts to produce godliness. This is the essence of the Christian life. Christ comes in as the resurrection and the life, and he raises me to a quality of life that I could not produce on my own. Human weakness has never been a problem with Jesus. Death is very simply human weakness taken to its greatest degree. And the greatest discovery that Lazarus ever made of Jesus was made in his grave, and that'll happen today. The greatest discovery that a Christian will make of Christ will be in the grave where their self-righteousness, self-effort dies. And they realize I have nothing to offer Jesus but my death. That's the only thing that Lazarus contributed to his own resurrection, his own death. Friends, God loves the sinner, God loves to forgive sin. But God condemns an attitude called sin in the Bible which says, I can do it on my own. God loves the sinner. He loves to forgive sins. But he condemns the disposition of sin in the human heart because that disposition says, I can do this on my own without Jesus. There's no forgiveness for that. There's only condemnation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 says God condemned sin in the flesh. Romans chapter 14 and verse 23 says whatever is not of faith is sin. Not a sin, but sin. He is comparing two dispositions of heart. As odd as this may sound, what God is looking for is anybody who will come to him and say on the basis of faith, Jesus, do it for me. That's the gospel, to become a Christian and to be the Christian we become. It's not the attitude I had towards the Christian life the first five years. The attitude that I had was, well, if Jesus has done so much for me, the very least I can do for him is live a God-pleasing life. And my problem was, the more I tried, the more I failed. And I can remember going to youth conferences with my youth group or with my family. And it would be a great time. There would be counselors, a band, speakers. At the end of the conference, often there was an evangelistic message. I had that assurance that I'd been born again when I was 13 years old, but then there would be this this second part of the evangelistic message, and it said something like this, well, if you're not living for Jesus, we would invite you to come today and rededicate your life to Christ. I came and I rededicated my life to Christ to give it my best shot. I would go home and very shortly thereafter, the warm fuzzies of the campfire would wear off. And in my effort to live a good Christian life, I failed and then had more shame heaped on that failure because I couldn't do this. It just seemed like more people had more dedication than I did. I don't know how many times I re-re-re-re-rededicated my life to Christ. And one day I went to a concordance and I looked up where on earth does it say in the New Testament that we should dedicate our lives to live for Jesus. I only found the word dedication one time and it's in John chapter 10 verse 22 which refers to an obscure feast or celebration that the Jews celebrated at the dedication of the temple. The New Testament does not call us to dedicate ourselves or to devote ourselves to live for Jesus. The New Testament calls us to die. I went to Bible school in 1979. First lecture we had lectured on the book of Hosea. I had not heard of Hosea because... In my read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan, I'd only gotten about to Leviticus and then got discouraged. So I'd never heard of Hosea. I will never forget what he said those first two weeks. He said, you need to know that the Christian life is not difficult. And when I heard that, I said, what on earth is he talking about? Well, of course, he didn't stop. He said, it's not difficult, it's impossible. It's like I'm sitting in the second to last row, closed my Bible, and I said, I just flew 5,000 miles to listen to this guy with a strong accent that I can barely understand tell me that the Christian life is impossible. My confusion at that statement was indicative of the spiritual deception under which I was suffering for the first five years of my Christian life. Nobody ever told me that God was going to call me to a life that I couldn't live. What if Jesus died today? I'm not talking about rolling back time. What if he died today and no longer lived in me? Would anything change? That would be like, like, like asking this question, what would change in that light bulb if electricity were extracted? Would anything change? Of course it would. Once Christianity is reduced to something that is wholly within the realm of human capability, it ceases to be biblical Christianity. Once something is reduced to that which is wholly within the realm of human possibility, it ceases to be biblical Christianity. Lazarus didn't help himself walk out of that tomb. It was the power of Jesus that pulled him out. I can, that's humanism. I must, that's religion. I can't, that's a Christian. God lets weak Christians die just like he did Lazarus. And he never expected anything more from us than failure in our efforts to produce godliness because godliness is something that God is and does. A.B. Simpson is the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And after about 10 years of ministry, he made the following discovery. This is taken from his testimony at the 50th anniversary of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And he speaks about this death in his own life. In his testimony at that event, this is what he said. It says, in a crisis hour of his spiritual experience while asking counsel from an old experienced friend, he was shocked to receive the answer all you need in order to bring you into the blessing you're sinking or you're seeking and to make your life a power for god is to be annihilated the fact is that the shock of that message almost annihilated him for the time and before god's faithful discipline was through he had learned in some adequate measure, as he has been learning ever since, I am not sufficient to think anything of myself. The Lord Jesus revealed himself as a living, all-sufficient presence, and he learned for the first time that Christ had not saved him, saved us from future peril and left us to, battle, to the battle of life as best we could, but he had justified us and was waiting to sanctify us, to enter into our spirit and substitute his strength, his holiness, his joy, his love, his faith, his power for all of our worthlessness, helplessness, nothingness. And to make it an actual living fact, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That was a new revelation. And henceforth, it was not his struggles, his character, his ethical culture, his good morals, but is constant depending upon the living one who said, because I live, you shall live also. And whatever has been accomplished in those 40 years since, in personal victory or public service, he counts it a great privilege to stand here today and say, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. This is at one time uh, the death blow to our ego, and yet at the same time, a tremendously liberating message. That Christ would come to live in me and to use me as his means to express and perpetuate his life on earth. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to the sisters, did I not say to you if you believe you will see the glory of God? The glory of God is not referring to, you know, lightning flashing or visions of angels. Glory is very simply referring to that which God alone does. And when we say I want to glorify God, I understand the intent, but I can't glorify God. God is here to glorify himself in me. Verse 44, it says they had to take away his grave clothes because all they did was hinder resurrection life from being manifested. And that's a part of the discipleship process. The scripture says, repent from your dead works. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Their works takes time, effort, planning, money, staff, but if they don't have their origin in Christ, they're dead. They don't stem from life. One day we'll be rewarded for what we allow him to do in us, not what we do for him. And that's why we'll throw down our crowns and we'll say, it wasn't me, it was you. A dead man doesn't try harder. A dead man doesn't worry about his performance. A dead man doesn't compare himself to others. A dead man doesn't feel inferior to others. And a dead man isn't offended by others. You can throw a dead man out the window and it won't hurt him. A dead man is free. And there's nobody who is more independent from man than the one who is living in complete dependence upon God. Well, I don't have it in front of me, but if you were to read on in John chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, Jesus, after this event, was at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus having a meal. I don't know who said the prayer or who thanked the Lord for the food, but they would have reason to say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't come and heal a sick man. You allowed a weak man to die, and we discovered that you're the resurrection and the life. God lets weak Christians die. Thank God for unanswered prayer. And that he lets us go to this point where we realize, I have nothing to offer you, Jesus. He'll say, that's fine. It's my life in you. So all I ever wanted was your availability. It's all I ever wanted. Not your effort, your availability. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we have this event, which teaches us so clearly what it means to live as a Christian. And Father, I thank you that you don't answer our prayers at times and give us what we want because you have something better in mind. And Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you're not just our help, you're our life. And I thank you that we can give ourselves up to you. And I would just ask for your patience as we learn this deeply. And Lord Jesus, may you have our body, our soul, and our spirit today so that you might use that as a means to communicate and express your life. Take your word and Allow it to bear fruit in the days to come for your own name's sake. Amen.